the book recognizes that, you know, for us to finally end poverty in America, and I want to end it, we do need new social policies, we need renewed social movements, but I think each of us need to also take a hard look at our lives and kind of find the ways that we are connected to poverty and try to divest ourselves from it and commit ourselves to become poverty abolitionists. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Why does the U.S., the richest country in the world, have the most poverty of any advanced democracy? Why are homeless encampments popping up from Seattle to Burlington? The answer is that, knowingly or unknowingly, many of us benefit from keeping poor people poor. That's the argument made by Matthew Desmond in his best-selling new book, Poverty by America. Desmond won the Pulitzer Prize for his 2016 book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, which was named one of the 50 best nonfiction books of the last century. He's a professor of sociology at Princeton University, a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award, and has been named by Politico as one of 50 people across the country who are most influencing the national political debate. Desmond's work is grounded in his own experience growing up in poverty. He argues that regulations ranging from zoning to environmental laws are being used to block affordable housing, a key factor that is driving the homelessness crisis. He says that this problem is often especially acute in communities known for their otherwise progressive politics. Low wages are kept low for the benefit of the more affluent. Matt Desmond started studying housing, poverty, and eviction in 2008, living and working alongside poor tenants and their landlords in Milwaukee. He now directs the Eviction Lab at Princeton and is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, where Poverty by America was recently excerpted. Matt Desmond, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, David, for having me. Your own upbringing informs your writing and thinking about poverty and has really set you apart from many others who've considered this topic. So why don't we start by just, if you tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up, and your own experience of poverty in your life. I grew up in a little town in northern Arizona, a railroad town, and my dad was a preacher, and we didn't have much money. Money was tight in our home. Um... And we experienced some of the cuts and humiliations of of poverty. You know, our gas got shut off. And when I was in college, we lost our 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 home to foreclosure. And I think going through that process, um, seeing my family stressed and depressed by the weight of poverty uh, worked its way inside of me. And then, um, you know, for my last book on evictions in America, I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I, I lived in a two very poor neighborhoods, a mobile home park and a rooming house in the inner city. And that's when I saw a kind of poverty that I had never experienced before. You know, I saw grandmas living without heat throughout the winter. I saw kids routinely evicted in that city. And I think that really exposed me to this hard bottom layer of scarcity in this rich country. Did that experience living amongst the poor, amongst people at huge risk of eviction and homelessness. Did you come out of that knowing something you didn't know before you began? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I learned so much on the ground level. I mean, first of all, I just learned how common eviction is. And a lot of us didn't realize that unless we were parts of families or communities that had experienced forced moves like that. But man, for me, you know, seeing um, 14,000 evictions, you know, happening every year in Milwaukee was shocking. Um, and kind of seeing, uh, children being not a shield for eviction, but something that often provoked eviction is actually worse for you to be living with kids that you had a higher risk of eviction. So I think I, I learned so much about the intersection of, of poverty and housing and just the fact that without stable shelter, man, everything else falls apart. But I, I learned other things too, things more on the spiritual level. You know, I learned what real poverty looks like in America. 
And I also learned just how gracefully and powerfully people refuse to be reduced uh, to their hardships. You know, I made a lot of good friends back in those neighborhoods. When you say you saw what real poverty looks like, uh, describe it. I was on an eviction move once, um, and uh, we knocked on this door. I was embedded with the sheriff company this this day, and uh, these, this kid opened the door, and she was maybe 14, 13. She had these beautiful gray eyes, and we went into the home, as you do with an eviction move, and we didn't find an adult, you know? And what had happened was uh, the the mom had had died and the kids had just gone on living in the house until the sheriff knocked on their door. And it was one of those rainy spring days, like maybe March, April. And uh, the sheriff comes in with a team of movers and the team of mover, movers piled all the kids stuff on the curb. And, uh, you know, they pushed him out the door. The landlord drilled the new lock. Someone called uh, social services. And we were off to the next eviction. It was, it was, it had a routine feel in a way. I think that was part of the hauntingness of it. And, you know, I mean, that was, that was just one scene, you know? And I think that, um, I think that seeing scenes like that amidst so much wealth and abundance in America really provoked me to, to write this, this new book, to really drilled in this question of why we tolerate this level of hardship. In, in our country. And and not to, uh, you know, give away a vast body of research, but you raise the question, why? What? Sketch out some of your answer. I think that there is so much poverty in America, not in spite of our wealth, but because of it. You know, some lives are made small so that others may grow. And, you know, we exploit the poor in the labor market and the housing market. Many of us benefit from that exploitation in the form of uh, low wages, which gives us low goods, cheap goods and services, high returns in our stock investment. Many of us benefit from a welfare state that does a lot more to subsidize affluence than it does to alleviate poverty. We give the most in this country to families that need it the least. And then, you know, we continue to be segregationists in America. Many of us build walls around our communities. We hoard affluence behind those walls. And that not only concentrates wealth and affluence, but it also concentrates poverty outside of our walls, the side effect of our stockpiled opportunity. So I think that many of us unwittingly are connected to this problem and also to the solution. Give some examples of the ways that we subsidize affluence, but also the mentality or ideology behind that. There is a whole kind of philosophy that undergirds this idea that you're rewarding people who work, people who create jobs. Um, but you have a different take on that. Um, and you also have a different take on who's being penalized and who's really picking up the tab for that. So a lot of us have a hard time seeing a tax break is the same thing as like food stamps or housing assistance. And I, I get it, right? You know, taxes are designed in a way that don't really make us concentrate on what we get from the government. They make us focus on what we have to give. But if you think about it, you know, a tax break costs the government money. A tax break puts money in our pockets. And a tax break is usually designed to incentivize a kind of behavior, like saving for college or buying a home. And that's a government subsidy. You know, if you look at housing, for example, a 15-story public housing complex and a suburban home with a mortgage that takes a mortgage interest deduction, you know, they're both government subsidized. Just only the first one feels that way and looks that way. And so if you add up everything the government does for us, if you count all the tax breaks, all the social insurance programs, all the means-tested programs. These are things like food stamps or housing assistance. You learn that families in the bottom 20% of the income distribution get about $25,000 a year from the government on average. But families in the top 20%, our richest families, they get about $36,000 from the government every year. That's almost a 40% difference. So that's an imbalanced welfare state. That's what I mean 
when I say we do a lot more to subsidize affluence and to alleviate poverty. And we do it in a way that does have an effect on mentalities of many American families. Like you said, you know, many of us, when we benefit from these programs, we often don't see them in our lives. You know, we don't see the government actively supporting us. And that often, ironically, causes us to vote for a smaller government or push for less government intervention. But we don't mean that in general. We just mean it specifically with respect to programs that we don't benefit from. And so I think that part of this work is kind of recognizing, you know, how the government supports us. And I think part of this work also is to start asking really hard questions about the morality or justification for how the welfare state in America is designed. You write that uh, you thought that if American poverty persisted, it was because we'd reduced our spending on the poor. But you say that you were wrong. Explain what you got wrong. So there are some programs that have experienced big cuts in the last 50 years, and um, housing is, is one of them. The budget for housing in America used to be a lot bigger uh, than it is today, and it, it's gotten reduced uh, over the years, especially under the Reagan administration. But with other programs, uh, if you look at inflation-adjusted uh, spending, uh, we haven't gotten stingier over time. We've actually deepened our investment in some of these programs targeting the poorest families in America today, things like Medicaid, food stamps, something you might have heard of called the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is this once-a-year wage bump for the poorest paid workers in America. Those investments have gotten deeper. So if you look at the per capita spending on the 13th biggest means-tested programs, uh, the first year Reagan was elected president, they're around $1,000 per person. The first year that uh, Donald Trump was president, they're around $3,400 per person. That's a 237% increase. And so that's interesting because we've made these deeper investments in uh, anti-poverty spending. Uh, and those investments work. You know, they are incredible lifesavers for so many families around the country, but still poverty persists. And that creates a paradox or a puzzle that the, the book tries to address. I want to continue that idea, you know, when you say that anti-poverty programs work, a lot of people justify cutting them because they describe it as a system where, you know, we're just throwing money down a hole and people get dependent on it. Can you address that specific complaint that we hear so often in the public discourse that welfare of various sorts creates dependency. We heard so much about that during COVID. Um, and we told ourselves often that, you know, folks were staying home because they're getting unemployment checks and we're paid to stay home. And then, you know, half the country, half the states uh, got rid of a lot of the extra benefits um, that came with COVID relief which allowed us to compare job numbers, right? And if the welfare dependency thesis was right, then we'd have expected states that got rid of the extra benefits to have better job numbers, right? Their jobs would, would explode. And that's not what we saw at all. You know, the states that kept the benefits and the states that got rid of them basically had the same job numbers when the data were released. And if you dig into the, the, the studies on welfare dependency, you quickly learn that the the bigger problem is welfare avoidance. You know, the fact that so many families are leaving billions, and I'm, I'm talking about billions of dollars, on the table every year. Most elderly Americans who qualify for food stamps don't apply for them. One in five workers that could receive that earning them tax credit doesn't apply for it. And if you add all the money left on the table with um, folks that don't apply for the earned income tax credit and food stamps and unemployment insurance and government health care. I learned that every year over $140 billion is uh, accounted for an unused aid. That is that is not a picture of welfare dependency. You know, it's the opposite. It's a picture of us 
doing a frankly terrible job connecting families to these programs. Well, explain that, you know, and you've, you've written about and spoken about how incredibly complicated and perhaps intentionally so to receive these benefits. And I don't think people have a sense of that. They have this idea that if the money is offered, people just grab it. What's the reality? The reality is people aren't walking away from these programs because of stigma or pride. There is something to that. And if anyone listening has ever spent, you know, half a day in a welfare office for that 10-minute appointment, they they understand the degradation ritual many poor families have to go through just for really basic assistance. But it seems to be the case that those those take-up rates is what us policy ranks ranks call it. Those take-up rates are so low because we've made it hard to apply. We've wrapped it in, in, in red tape. We've made it bureaucratic. In some states, we've made it downright cruel. In some states, you have to get photographed and fingerprinted to uh, to apply for cash welfare, for example. And I guess I just want to go back to these other benefits that that a lot of the listeners probably do receive, things like the mortgage interest deduction or, you know, tax breaks for saving for a 529 plan. You know, those are pretty easy to apply for. And no one is actually asking us what we're doing with that money, right? No one's saying, hey, Matt, are you buying booze with that savings you get from your mortgage interest deduction? So this kind of focus on, on welfare fraud and dependency, it's really only a focus on poor families unfairly. And what does that come from, this intense mistrust and even hatred of people who don't have means? I think it comes from the very early days of capitalism, actually. You know, when we started embracing capitalism in the Western world, you know, we quickly realized that, you know, big money needed big government. You know, if, if you want to have a capitalist economy, you, you need an army. You know, you need a way to protect international um, flows of goods and services. You need um, to make private property and have laws that enforce that uh, idea and have jails and lawmen when, when folks break those laws. So you, you need a lot of government support coming around free markets. But the problem that capitalists faced was, you know, a big government could also pass out bread, you know, could also, and bread was the thing that the capitalists used to get workers to leave their land, leave a life of kind of farming and subsistence and uh, march into the factories or into the coal mines. And so that is kind of where this kind of story started emerging, where, you know, the poor will not work unless they're made to, you know, we have these amazing texts from the late 18th century saying, you know, if you want folks to work, you got to make them hungry. And so um, this idea of making sure that the government wasn't who or the, you know, making sure the government wasn't the institution that satisfied that hunger was a big part of the story of capitalism. And that story has been passed down for years and years and years. I also think, you know, this comes from the fact that a lot of us maybe are segregated from poor folks, you know, and and don't have them in our lives. And I think that those of us who are doing life with folks that are struggling and below the line, we we quickly realize how thin and, and often um, unfair many of these myths about poverty are. In my lifetime, I think about, uh, you know, we had the war on poverty uh, started by President Johnson in the 60s, and an era when we both instituted programs to provide relief, and I think to some degree took pride in those programs, recognized the need. And the end point of that uh, sort of openness that these programs might actually do some good, uh, in my mine comes in the Reagan years with the advent of this notion, a highly racialized notion of the welfare queen. And I wonder how that kind of jibes with your sense of the arc of this story when poor people or, you know, people with low incomes came to be demonized and essentially, you know, were blamed for their own poverty. So when President Johnson launched the War on Poverty in 1964, 
And it wasn't just rhetoric, you know, they set a deadline. And the war on poverty and the Great Society were real deep investments in the poorest families in America. You know, expanded Social Security, made food aid permanent, uh, began Medicaid, Head Start, Job Corps. And these programs made a difference. You know, basically 10 years after the war on poverty launched, uh, poverty was cut in half. And those programs had a lot to do with that. But something else did too, which was the job market. When the war on poverty was launched, uh, wages were climbing. Unions were strong. One in three workers belonged to a union. Uh, if you had a job, you, you could advance in the company, have some benefits. But as unions lost power, uh, American jobs got a lot worse. And the kind of poverty-fighting power of those government programs started getting diluted. And then there was this kind of incredible misdirection that happened during the Reagan administration, where Reagan famously said, you know, we fought poverty in poverty won. This is the president who went toe-to-toe um, -to -toe with air traffic controllers, right, when they went on strike, and he fired all of them um, and really sent a signal in America that unions could be attacked and even destroyed without much political blowback. And that really mattered. And so, you know, one of the reasons, I think, for the stubbornness of poverty is because the American job market isn't pulling its weight, you know? And I think that that racialized uh, rhetoric, the welfare, welfare queen rhetoric that you brought up was a way of, I think, distracting the American people from the real story. And the real story was their jobs were getting a lot worse to the fact that, you know, today, if you're a, if you're a male without a college degree, your real wages, your inflation adjusted wages are less than they were 50 years ago. That's the story that we should have been focused on. When we talk about unions, it's it's pretty stunning the retreat of unions in the American landscape. Uh, in the 1980s, one in five Americans were a member of a trade union. And today it's half that, just one in 10. What happened to unions? Three things happened. So first, unions lost their traditional organizing base. As we shifted from an industrial to a post-industrial society, the, the factory floor where unions really made their hay uh, started leaving. And, uh, and that really uh, caused unions to stumble. But the second thing that happened is unions shot themselves in the foot. You know, even in their heyday, many unions were just outright racist. You know, they barred black and non-white workers from their ranks. And that really prevented the labor movement from reaching its full power, you know, from becoming this big, broad, multiracial movement that it could have been without uh, white racism so strong within union ranks. And then the third thing that happened is, you know, unions were just attacked by political adversaries, you know, and things that look to us like economic destiny, you know, uh, were often the result of trade policy, right? Like NAFTA, it was passed uh, in, in the Clinton administration, which allowed um, factories to go to Mexico much easier than they than they did before. And so this kind of uh, one, two, three punch has really caused the decline of unions in America. And with that decline has come the stagnant wages at the bottom of the market and a, a real climb in CEO pay. You know, when workers were unionized at the highest rates, that was the most economically, you know, equitable time in American history. Uh, but this inequality that we're facing now, I think, is in large part a reflection on the loss of union power. It's, it's interesting. So, you know, you're you're pointing out that even people who are not in unions are benefiting from unions. And the loss of unions has dragged down the entire workforce and the entire pay scale. Um, what will it take for unions to come back or are they an organizing tool of the past? Well, I think we're seeing the rise of a new labor movement today. I think we're seeing the rise of finally a multi-racial nimble labor movement. But look, man, we gotta make organizing easier. Right, right now, it's incredibly hard to fight for rights in a workplace. Most workers uh, report that they want to join a union. You know, they would if they could, but uh, 
but most workers have just such a hard time getting there, you know? And so one idea is instead of organizing, you know, this Starbucks and then that one and then the next one, which is just kind of an impossible task for organizing all the food service workers in America, why don't we organize entire sectors instead? So if everyone in a sector like food and hospitality took a vote and that vote cleared a threshold, 50%, 55%, whatever we thought, then that would activate the secretary of labor and uh, he would or she would kind of convene a bargaining panel made up of worker and business representatives and they would negotiate for the terms that could cover the whole industry. This is a way to organize all those Starbucks at once. And it's a tactic that's been used really successfully in, in Europe to kind of make sure organizing is easy and make sure it covers wide swaths of workers, not just, you know, these 15 workers at Starbucks that get a union after five years of organizing. Well, and then there's the other approach, the fight for 15, um, you know, the national approach to focus on kind of an end goal that uh, sort of goes even beyond unions to what is, where does that fit in? I think it's something like what I'm suggesting, right? So the fight for 15 didn't organize a single store, you know, and didn't even focus on a single franchise, like all the McDonald's. It said, okay, all the fast food workers in this city, we're going to bind together and we're going to fight for wages that's going to cover all of you and all poorly paid workers across the board. So that is a kind of a new labor power and a kind of way that they did focus on sectors. And, you know, it's crazy that we need to fight so hard to get minimum wages bumped up. You know, the federal minimum wage hasn't been increased in over 13 years. This is unconscionable. And this is also very strange. So most other countries, they look at their minimum wage every year and make adjustments. But our poorest paid workers, they have to wait over a decade for a pay raise, for Congress to get their act together. This just isn't fair. We're talking now three years after the start of a global pandemic, when all of a sudden, many of the things you've been writing and thinking about in terms of anti-poverty programs or poverty reduction and poverty prevention programs, many of these were essentially um, put into place during the pandemic. Talk about what happened. What did we see in this giant anti-poverty experiment that was the, uh, the pandemic here in America? We saw real investments in the American people, and we saw poverty plunge to record lows. Um, the government uh, rolled out the child tax credit, uh, something called the extended child tax credit, which is just a subsidy for moderate and low-income families with kids. Basically, if you had kids and you were below a certain income, you got a you got a guaranteed basic income during COVID, and that very simple program reduced child poverty by 46% in six months, six months. It was incredible progress. The government also came to the aid of renting families uh, after the eviction moratorium lifted. The big question is, you know, are we going to have this spike in evictions? And the government distributed uh, aid in the form of something called emergency rental assistance, uh, which had a budget of $46.5 billion. That's real money. That's like double the budget of uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And that ended up reaching over 10 million renting families and drove evictions down to record lows. And so a big lesson from COVID, I think, is organizing works, pushing for big, bold anti-poverty programs work. And those programs themselves work. You know, we know how to do this. We have the resources. It is it's sad, you know, and, and utterly shameful, I think, that those programs um, are going away and that we heard the same old arguments about how could we afford it, you know, um, and when faced with those programs. And I, I just think that question, how can we afford it, is just such a, a sinful, dishonest question. I mean, the answer is staring us straight in the face. We, we could afford it if the richest among us took less from the government. Let me just give you one statistic. Um, study published a few years ago showed that 
if the top 1% of renting, or excuse me, if the top 1% of the richest families in America pay the taxes they owed, we could raise an additional $175 billion a year. Well, how big is that? That's enough to reestablish the child tax credit that did so much to cut child poverty and still have money left over. That's enough to more than double our investment in affordable housing and still have money left over. So, you know, we could make these deeper investments if we just stop doing so much to guard fortunes. Well, and that question of how could we afford it, of course, is the wrong question. It it really begs another question, which is how and why do we tolerate stepping over people lying in the streets? Um, how do we tolerate and accept, you know, extreme poverty? As you point out in your book, some 18 million Americans uh, live in what is called extreme poverty, which is a family of four making less than $13,000 a year. And, um, you know, the cost of even maintaining the, the, the vast support networks, which of course is very porous and many people fall through it, is also very expensive. But as you also point out, um, has been riddled with exploitation, um, where so little money um, you, you make the case that every dollar budgeted for the program TAMF, Temporary Aid for Needy Families, only 22 cents reaches the families. Um, talk about exploitation as a feature of our work, um, of our anti-poverty programs. Right. Let's talk about let's talk about that program real quick, the cash welfare program. Um, so this is a, a a significant program. It's a, the biggest block grant in the American budget. And that phrase block grant, that's important, right? That just means that the federal government gives states money and says, hey, states, you've got some discretion about how to use that money. And man, states <laughs> exercise that discretion. You know, they use uh, cash welfare dollars to fund Christian summer camps or uh, organize marriage initiatives or uh, teach abstinence-only education, things that have very little or nothing to do with alleviating hardship and hunger. Many states don't even do anything with the money. They don't have to spend it every year, and they don't. So the last time I checked, Tennessee was sitting on over $700 million in unused welfare aid. Um, Hawaii was sitting on so much that the state could distribute $10,000 to every poor kid within its borders. And so this is clearly an example of a kind of policy callousness. You know, what we're talking about here is we're talking about kids going hungry, kids facing eviction, uh, kids experiencing homelessness because of the way we've chosen to, to use those funds uh, dedicated to those, those families, those kids. And then you step back and you look at broader exploitation in America, right? And exploitation is kind of a scary word. It, it has a lot of, I don't know, punch and teeth. But for me, it just means choice. You know, if you if your choices are limited, you're gonna you're gonna get a bad deal. And for many workers and many renters in America, they face just unrelenting exploitation. Or if you just look at the financial market, you know, every year. $11 billion is collected in overdraft fees. $1.6 billion is collected in check cashing fees. Another $11 billion in payday loan fees. That's $61 million pulled out of the pockets of the poor in fees every single day. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about exploitation. You know, when James Baldwin famously said how expensive it is to be poor, I don't think he could have imagined these receipts. It's this notion or reality of a pipeline of wealth going from the poor to the wealthy, to the people who don't need it. I mean, banks don't need those overdraft fees, but it sure is profitable for them to be part of what they do. Right. And it's also something that benefits a lot of us. And I think this is a kind of a hard pill to swallow sometimes. A lot of times when we talk about the inequality debate, we kind of you know, point the finger at that guy just above us on the economic ladder, you know. But, you know, many of us benefit from free checking accounts 
because it turns out those accounts aren't free. You know, they're subsidized by billions of dollars in overdraft fees, most of which is just charged the 9% of bank users, 9% of bank clients. Who are they? That the poor, you know, made to pay for their poverty. Or if you look at other forms of exploitation, like housing exploitation, the fact that most renting families spend at least half of their income on housing costs and the fact that rents in very poor neighborhoods are not as low as you think. You know, who benefits from that? Well, some landlords do, that's true. But many of us who are homeowners benefit too. You know, our housing values propped up by our collective effort to make housing scarce and expensive. So the the book the book recognizes that, you know, for us to finally end poverty in America, and I want to end it, we do need new social policies. We need renewed social movements. But I think each of us need to also take a hard look at our lives and kind of find the ways that we are connected to poverty and try to divest ourselves from it and commit ourselves to become poverty abolitionists. Let me, uh, I do want to pick up on that, uh, the poverty abolitionists, but I want to also pick up on something you just mentioned about how we benefit from poverty. Uh, one of the ways that the things that you talk about is zoning, uh, that most boring of names and topics, um, but that it has often acts as a driver of exclusion and poverty. Um, there are also environmental regulations uh, that are cited to, quote, maintain the character of the neighborhood. Give Talk a little bit about that, how zoning and other types of regulations that are often in progressive cities, um, but that these progressive cities you write have built the highest walls of all. Explain. Yeah, you're right that there might not be a phrase more soulless in the English language than municipal zoning ordinance. But man, this is this is a great way to pick up the soul of a community. Um, you know, on in most residential land in America, most, it's illegal to build anything except a single detached family home. And that little tweak, that little regulation buried inside of our zoning codes really means that the only place poor families could live are in neighborhoods of concentrated disadvantage, concentrated poverty. And that creates a level of disadvantage of a whole other order. And it also creates these strange scarcity trade-offs, right? Where because affluent communities have been so effective at barring affordable housing, that affordable housing often is only built in down market neighborhoods. And then you kind of pit low-income families that are just hanging on because uh, they're scared about gentrification pressures to low-income families that need a, need a home. This is just, this is crazy way to have a society. And so I think that we need to think about our role and our complicity in maintaining those walls around our our, around our communities. You know, studies show that conservative renters were more likely to vote yes on a affordable housing complex in their neighborhood than, than liberal homeowners. You know, it's telling, you know, maybe we're not so polarized after all. You know, maybe above a certain income level, we're all segregationists. And so for for me, this this is an abstract. It's a call to action. It means that we need to get our tails down to that zoning board meeting on a Thursday night at eight o'clock and stand up and say, look, you know, I refuse to be a segregationist. I refuse to deny other kids opportunities. My kids receive living here. Let's build this thing. It seems like we may be at a tipping point, you know, to go now to some of the great cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, is to see these vast encampments of unhoused people. And it has spilled into public view and let's just say middle-class consciousness in a way that I don't think has happened since the Great Depression. And here in Vermont, there is no housing in many communities, just none. I mean, our hospital, University of Vermont Medical Center, is losing nurses and doctors because they can't even find middle-class housing. So. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder if there's an opportunity in this crisis and that the very kind of dire scenes that we see with these homeless encampments may be the thing that can spurn a new movement. I think that's right. My wife shared with me this quote um, from a book called The Book of Sands, old book. And it goes like this, something like this. Um, if you want people to build a boat, you don't collect the wood and you don't form a team. You make them long for the edge of the sea. And I think that you're right about the country being at an inflection point. And most Democrats and most Republicans now think that poverty is a result of unfair circumstances. Most of us in America want higher wages. Most of us think that the rich aren't paying their fair share of taxes. And then you have these just scenes of public poverty alongside private opulence, like you see in San Francisco and LA. And I think that this is a recognition that all this poverty and all this profiting from other people's pain drags us all down, you know, diminishes all of us. So the call that I'm making in the book is a call that will require some of us who have achieved some sort of economic stability and privilege to take a bit less from the government. But I think what we get in return is better. You know, we get a safer country, a more prosperous country, a more dynamic country, a fairer country. I think that's a country that a lot of us would rather live in. Say more about poverty abolitionism and what that looks like. You're saying take a little bit less, but talk about the various dimensions of what it would mean to be a poverty abolitionist today. I think poverty abolitionists uh, view poverty not as a minor social issue or an inevitability, but as an abomination, you know? And it shares with other abolitionist movements, the movement to abolish slavery or the prison, for example, the recognition, the conviction that, you know, if my gain comes at someone else's loss, that's corrupting in a way. And so a poverty abolitionist divests from exploitation, uh, even if it benefits us. We try to shop and invest in solidarity with poor workers. We want a government that has a balanced and sensible welfare state, you know, a government that does much more to fight poverty and um, then to alleviate um, the tax burdens of the affluent. And we are for integrated communities and open, inclusive neighborhoods. And so I think that that, that mission of poverty abolitionism, it's a, it's a political mission, you know? It's something that's gonna involve uh, political movements, but it's also a personal stance. And I think that the book tries to trouble this kind of convenient distinction we often make between individual choices and solutions and structural ones. I think that if we know how to solve poverty and if we have the resources, then the tricky part is building the political will. And that's where this call comes in. It's about different kinds of conversations with your neighbors across the fence. It's about different questions you're raising at the school board meetings. It's about pushing your faith communities to ask the question, what are we doing to, to, to address poverty in our own community? So I think that that's, that's what this is all about. It's about us kind of adopting a different identity and a different politics and losing this tolerance for all this poverty in our midst. One of the features of our current political landscape is with the rise of Trumpism, kind of the opposite of what you're talking about, where um, working class and lower income people among many others, but uh, have been persuaded to vote against their own self-interest, that programs that benefit them, they've been, you know, are now rallying cries, things that, you know, we need to end. How do you square that, this, you know, getting, persuading people to vote against their own self-interest? I think that low-income Americans deserve more than either party has delivered for them over the last 50 years. And I think that 
on a shoulder-to-shoulder level, a neighbor-to-neighborhood level, I think there's a lot more agreement on issues of basic economic fairness and justice than it looks like when we follow Congress. You know, there's a little story in the book about a protest going on in Albany, New York, driven by uh, one fair wage, uh, mostly black and Latinx workers from New York City uh, fighting for subminimum subminimum wage. They're fighting against it. They want an in-tipped wage, basically. And it was the same day as a Stop the Steal rally. And so a lot of white folks with red hats came over to their their rally and say, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? What are you protesting? And they say, we want higher wages. We want better working conditions. And the Stop the Steal guys uh, said, yeah, we want that too. And they shook hands and joined, joined the movement, joined the rally. And this isn't to um, dismiss these legitimate and serious concerns about uh, polarization and what's happened in the American political sphere in the last 10 years. Um, but I do think, you know, there's a lot of promise there too. I do think there's a lot more solidarity on these kind of basic economic issues than often we we think. And then the question is, why is our Congress so polarized? And why are our electeds so polarized from us when it comes to these issues? And we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about what I think is part of the answer, which is appeals to racism, to racial grievance, blaming race for things that have nothing to do with race. Um, why is that happening? You know, why now? Oh, I, I think I think that's just an old, long-standing American tradition. You know, if you have a a capitalist economy that was rooted in slavery, that got its jump and its acceleration, that owes so much of its uh, of its nature and and even power uh, to enslaving millions of of black workers. I think you're you know you are going to have a longstanding tradition of of this this story, right? So it's impossible to write a book about poverty in the United States without also writing a book about racism. In the United States, and you're right, it's so central. It's central to how segregated the the nation is. It's central to our politics. It's central to to our empathy, you know. And if you know, studies have shown, depressingly, troublingly, that when Americans believe that you know welfare funds are flowing disproportionately to Black folks, they they pull back from them, you know. And so this is this should be top of our agenda too, and this is where the kind of overlap between a movement for poverty abolitionism and a movement against racism uh, are are moving in lockstep. The you know many of the kind of anti-poverty efforts are a lot easier to understand on a local level than when we you know sort of zoom out to the federal level where we're talking about you know billions and trillions. If you were advising a governor on some of the most effective and aggressive anti-poverty programs that she could do, what would those be? So in the hands of state law are zoning laws. And so a governor could take a real active interest in trying to build economically and racially diverse communities. And so I think that's one step in that direction. I think a governor could take a hard look at other kinds of laws too, you know, laws that have, uh, excuse me, housing laws that make it easy and quick for landlords to evict families. Guess what? They, they use eviction court a lot more in those states. And so there's a lot of real effective tinkering one can do within the law itself. And then there's, you know, questions about trying to change the, the culture or the political will of your state to get real investment in fighting poverty. So you could think of things like trying to pass, um, you know, a housing levy, for example, uh, that homeowners would agree to pay for that would allow extra funds to flow into affordable housing developments. Uh, Seattle has done this since the 1970s. LA has agreed to multiple tax increases to invest in affordable housing and fight homelessness. So I think that that's also a place where state leaders 
can really start asking more of uh, of their residents. It seems like, you know, revisiting that idea, we are at this, the edge of this possibilities in the pandemic, as we discussed, you know, we actually floated and saw the results of programs that can make a difference, but it's also an extremely volatile place, this place of possible change, as we see with, you know, the rise of the, the violent white backlash. I wonder what do you feel um, more optimistic, pessimistic, unsure? How would you characterize your feelings about the moment we are at right now and where we are headed? I mean, look, we've been here before, right? In the 1960s, Congress was polarized. In the 1960s, you had a very active and violent uh, white movement against the civil rights um uh marchers and in that political con you know in that political situation uh where senators were sleeping in their offices to filibuster where government obstructionism wasn't just the outcome it was the goal where you know young white men were throwing bricks and bottles at black protesters and marchers in that context you got major pieces of civil rights legislation passed and you got the modern social safety net in the form of the war on poverty and the great society. And if so much was accomplished then, despite the odds, it was because social movements put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers. They captured the American public and they forced Congress's hand. And I think that should give us hope, but it also should mean we got to act and we can't just kick the can down the road and just wait for a new Congress or a new president or a new governor. You know, I think we start the lesson I think we pull from our movement foremothers and forefathers in the labor and civil rights movements is that we got to act now uh, in spite of it all. And so, you know, joining an anti-poverty movement sounds really abstract. So one thing I've done to help folks plug in is start a website called endpovertyusa.org. It's just endpovertyusa.org. And you can find anti-poverty movements working in Vermont or New Hampshire, God help us, or even at the national level. And so this is a really great place to kind of look up and plug in if you're interested. Hmm. Well, Matthew Desmond, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks, David. It's been great. Thank you, sir.